Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. So I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Rhonda Kite. Rhonda is an award-winning film and television producer, creating work such as anthology series Mataku and feature-length documentary Squeegee Bandit. In the early 2000s, Rhonda founded Kiwi Media. Its first software product was VoiceQ, a tool designed to automatically dub foreign language dialogue in television and film production. And VoiceQ is now used in studios worldwide. More recently, Kiwi has moved into digital publishing, creating multilingual digital books that bring content to life in ways that are interactive and immersive. Rhonda has also served on most of the screen industry boards in Aotearoa, New Zealand, including Māori Television and New Zealand on Air. And in 2018, Rhonda was named an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to media technology, television and films. Kia ora, Rhonda. Kia ora, Anna. Nice to be with you. Uh, ngā mihi kia koutou katoa, uh, nō te aupauri, ngā tikuri, nai takatoa tōku iwi, uh, ka Rhonda kai tōku ingoa. And yeah, you do make me sound very flash, so thank you very much for that. Well, I don't, I'm not sure about that. This is it's funny, isn't it? When you summarise somebody's um, life and work, it does sound amazing, but that absolutely is, is all true and is all you. Yeah. Um, so, Rhonda, the first question I would love to ask you is to take you a little way back to when you were growing up and when you were a child or, or even as you're into your teenage years, what kind of careers were you thinking about? So I was brought up in Ottawa and there wasn't an awful lot of, career advice in the late 60s, early 70s, certainly for young Māori people. And I learned very quick to make it all up for myself. And I guess that's what I've been doing my rano since then. And so what got me into this industry was that I remember as a child just escaping into the world of film and, and television. I wouldn't miss a Saturday matinee in uh, Papatoi Starlight Theatre and on the way home I'd be reenacting all of the characters and, and all of that. And so, but it fascinated me how these things were made. Also, we used to listen to the radio. There was a Sunday morning stories and I used to listen to them and I'd hear the sounds of these instruments that I had no idea what they were and I would just kind of fantasise of what they might look like. And so I've always been into kind of like that sound, drama, acting, that sort of thing. When I got into my teens, I was um, interrupted by becoming a teenage mother. And so that kind of, you know, put me on the back foot for a little bit. But it was still in my genes, you know, the music and the the film and the drama. Absolutely wonderful. And I, it absolutely, you know, whether it is music or a film or TV, it is that wonderful sense of escapism. And you get caught up for a while out of your own life and into somebody else's story. But also that I like, you know, whether it was the acting or the instruments, you know, you're almost thinking, how was it all put together as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. And tell me then about your, you know, your first jobs. What were some of the highlights, but also the, some of the challenges of those? 
you know, it's easy to it's easy to look back on it now because this was quite some years ago, something like about 52 years ago. And my very first job, I was an office clerk in Newmarket in Auckland with a for a little plumbing company. And I believe the National Bank has got that corner now. And it was called CJ Smith Limited. And I remember old Mr. Cecil James, he used to come, he was, gosh, was he in his 90s then. He was still coming to work every day, but he'd come up and he'd sit and have a chat with me and we'd have a cup of tea. And he talked to me about this gizmo that he invented for a water pressure heater, right? Hot water tank pressure heater, whatever they're called. And it was the story that he told along with it that really, I thought, oh, wow, people actually invent things. You know, and that really stayed with me. And so whenever I'd have a, a bit of a problem, I think of Mr. C.J. Smith and go, okay, how do we find something? How do we find a gizmo to be able to solve this issue? So that was the first lesson that I got out of my first job. I guess the innovation, mm. now we call it innovation. It wasn't a word when when I was doing that, but that's I was grounded in, in innovation was there, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And what a great lesson to take from that very first role about if there's a problem, how do you figure out a way to get around it? And then as you said, you know, you had that that kind of dream of whether it's film, TV, you know, the sound side, the maybe the acting side. How did you then come to to get into that world? Well, it was really interesting because when I was around, I think I was about 38 and I had been working in corporates. And at the time I was working for an Australian company that was based here in New Zealand. And I was doing the usual corporate thing, you know, putting in 50, 60 hours a week. And, you know, one day the, the, the GM job was going to be mine. And then they sold out overnight and we were out of a job. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, you know, I've got no control over my own destiny. And, you know, I've heard that decisions that you make two years before a milestone birthday are actually lasting changes. And it just occurred to me that I needed to be somewhere where I could have control of my own destiny, if you like. So during that time, so I went off and I did some other accounting work for another company. And then through happenstance, really, I, uh, a friend of mine met a new fellow. He owned a recording studio and they were both going to go overseas and he wanted to have a manager and was looking for a manager in the studio. At that point, because it was a turning point for me, I decided, no, nah, I don't want to be a manager, but, you know, would you take me on as a business partner? Or can we do that together? The answer was yes. And so we did. And that was in 1993. And within two years, I bought him out. Amazing. And I was now in the sound business. And, you know, thinking about challenges of that first business for me, in those days we had, in 93, we had what's, what was called, 20, what is called 24-track tape. So, and we had the big, you know, desk and, you know, the bands would come in and we'd, it was a music studio, and we'd record every single track and you could have up to 24 tracks on this tape and then you'd mix them all up, you know, and then you got your final product. So quite a laborious way of doing things, but that's how it was done. Then digital technology came in. That was around 97, 98, about 97. And we bought the first digital software tool, which is Pro Tools, was the first one on the market for us here in New Zealand. So the 24-track went out the door, but so did 90% of my business because all of a sudden, you know, musicians weren't coming and paying for studio time anymore. They were putting up egg cartons on their walls and having these little digital um, programs and recording themselves. So I had to pivot 
And again, coming back to, you know, Cecil James Smith, I had to pivot and go, okay, what else is there? What else is there? And so we segued into audio post-production for initially for commercials and then ultimately for feature films, documentaries and the like, which was then my segue into getting into producing. Fascinating. And what a wonderful early lesson, actually. And, you know, I guess the challenges of running your own business that, you know, that when something doesn't go quite as you hoped or the market changes, that, that it's up to you to try and make a shift to, to sustain that business. And, you know, equally, I can imagine for you, you know, having come very much from a, a corporate career working for somebody else to all of a sudden be running your own thing. How was that transition? Yeah, it was tricky. I mean, I said to my husband, you know, it's okay. I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to be getting like $500 a week or something. But look, within months, boom, we'll be right up there. Mm. Four years later, I think I was lucky if I could get $450 a week out of it. It was a real learning curve. And from a corporate perspective, going into a creative environment, you know, I'd say to my engineers, okay, we're booking so many hours in the studio and they, and then they haven't finished. And I, it, so for me, it was like, but how many hours is it going to take you to be creative? Mm. And you can't ask a creative that. It's like how long is a piece of string because they're creating. So I had to learn very quickly that accounting for cans of soup and pats of butter, you know, on one hand, had no correlation with, create, with you know, timekeeping creatives. And that was the biggest thing for me. And then you have, and you weigh that up with quality as well. So, you know, some clients would want to hurry up their job so that it wouldn't cost so much. But, you know, I, I had an ear by then, right? And I was finding my ear even more. And, you know, I didn't, the last thing I wanted was what could be perceived as substandard content going out of, you know, my studio. So it's that kind of stuff. I'm a bit of a control freak and I'm used to kind of giving orders. And so I had to learn how to just be a bit more diplomatic, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure thing. But I can imagine actually you would, in particularly in the post-production side, need to be incredibly focused on the quality that you are putting out. And But what an interesting balance between quality, creativity, and also time as well, and trying to manage some of those perhaps competing um, areas too. And so then you said, Rhonda, that from doing post-production for adverts, for some TV film work, then you moved into the, into the production side. Yeah, it was, you know, again, more happenstance. And there were programs coming through the studio that I thought, mm, hang on a minute, I can do that. You know, so it was like, what's a producer do, you know? And I kind of learnt by talking to other people. And then I thought, you know, you're just telling a story. And I have had four younger brothers who are much younger than this girls. And so I was always telling them stories and I was making them up and I'd tell them, you know, bedtime stories and that. And it's like, oh, okay, drama, stories, I can do something. So around that time, Inside New Zealand on TV3, we're, well, TV3 were launching Inside New Zealand, the documentary series. And I went along to the opening event of that and I found myself standing next to Vincent Burke, who was the original commissioning editor. And I said to him, you know what? Someone should make a story about the good news that comes out of a place like Ōtara, or Ōtara in particular. I said, because it's not all bad news stories. This was in 98 or 99. And he says, yeah, you're right. He says, call me tomorrow. And I thought, oh, okay. 
and ring him up and I can tell him, you know, what someone should be making. And he says, well, you make it. And I went, what? <laughs> he says, but it's your story. You're the best one to do it. And so I did. I Again, pivoting, I picked it up. And I got a director on board and that was a lesson for me too because now my creative side was really coming in because this is my story and having someone outside, I had to, because I was a first-time producer, I had to have an experienced director. So that was, and they knew nothing about the hood. So that was a challenge. Anyway, we made it and I tracked down our head prefect. He was in Monterey, California, owning this big jewelry chain. Who else? One of the teachers, he was still there. He only left school to go to teacher's training college and then came back. And a bunch of others who had gone into other sort of policy areas and you know different kind of careers, but very successful. And we ended up winning an award for it. So I think it was a Qantas Awards, I think it was then. I thought, oh, yep, I know how to do this. How wonderful. And almost how wonderful that that conversation with the commissioning editor where he was able to, you know, it could have been a different conversation. He could have said, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll have a look into it or we'll, you know, we'll chat to somebody about it. But almost that encouragement for you to say, it's your story, you tell it, just set your career on a different path. What was the path then to creating Keyword Digital? So Keyword Digital was originally a, post, uh, a production company. So once I had made Autata Define the Odds, and you can find it on YouTube. Yeah. I went on to make a series of documentaries and then went on to do lifestyle programs, arts programs, those sorts of things. And then which ultimately again led to Mataku, the drama series. So I needed a separate entity to do that. So I got a general manager in for the recording studio and he eventually became my business partner there. And I moved down the road in Fleet Street in Auckland and we had our production company there. So, and it was around that time or during all of that, that I started to develop my technology with, with VoiceQ. Again, pivoting. Yeah, mm. quite a pivot. And although, you know, you can see how some of the strands that start to come together in terms of if you'd be doing audio post-production, you know, you've been thinking about sound and, and how that connects and maybe how do people tell their stories. And then how did you then move that onto a more of a global stage? Because I know, you know, for a lot of New Zealand companies, they sort of look internally first and it's quite a leap then to, to sell something on a more of a global stage. Yeah, with VoiceQ, VoiceQ is a dubbing software. So a bit of a history to that. So I got a, a, a call one year from a French producer who had worked in New Zealand before, and he had just finished a, a co-production with a South Africa and France. So he had these dramas, uh, I think they're about 54-minute dramas, three of them, that were shot half in French language and half in Afrikaans because of the co-production agreement. So he remembered, you know, the, class, the very high um, standard of voiceovers and actors that we had here in New Zealand, and it was a nice neutral accent. So he got in contact with us and he was in the books and studio time to, to dub these into English. I think, you know, we thought, oh, well, this is a big gig, you know. He's going to take like six, seven weeks. He booked two weeks. <laughs> we were going, mm, he doesn't know what he's on about, you know. We thought we knew better. So he rocks up with this film, this on, on video that was on transferred off 35mm print and it had synchronised translation over the, on the screen, basically. Mm. And I asked him about it and he said, it's called Rhythmaband. It was uh, unique to the French market. And the translator would hand write on a piece of 35 mil film in synchronization to the audio, yeah? 
and the lips. And I said, how long does that take? He says, oh, probably about a month. Mm. And I said, well, what if you, you may have to make changes to the dialogue or something? Oh, well, we'll make the change and then we strike another print. And in those days, striking another 35-mil print was like about 5,000 euros. So all you need is a picky director and, or a picky translator and it's going to cost you a small fortune. Anyway, hark back to Hillary slash Autata College and we were taught to touch type, right? We had the apron in front of us. So I could type, I can type as fast as, you know, anyone can talk on a film. So I'm sitting there in my studio looking at the screen going, what if I was typing the script and it automatically came up on the screen in perfect synchronization? What do I need to do that? Mm. Took me 12 years and I've done it because the technology wasn't there yet. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the other thing too, Anna, is that, you know, don't be afraid to make it up. Don't be afraid to make it up because the technology will come. And if it's not there, invent it, pivot. And you're right. There wasn't, so then I go, okay, well, where's the market for it here? Well, no one wanted anything dubbed because all we were doing was, it was all English language films that we were getting. And art house, there wasn't enough demand for anyone to spend any money in this area. So over that period of time of waiting for the technology to catch up, I was still kind of jerrying it, really. And so I introduced Tamangai Paho to the idea of dubbing. Again, I got hit back, I go back to my OE experience. And in the late 70s, I went to the UK. And my husband and I were doing our OE in our Volkswagen van. And we were in Morocco. And we pulled up to the camping ground when we got something to eat. And the television was on. And there was Fred Flintstone speaking Arabic. Hmm. He still had the yabba yabba do, mm-hmm. but he was, <laughs> he was all in utter bit. And it's like, oh, wow. So as I'm starting to think about this, it's like, well, why don't we dub programs into Te Reo Māori? And it took me three years before the funders thought that it was worth the punt. And so I started doing it and there was some money left over one year. And so I got into it and there were all sorts of challenges like, the translators, not all of them lived in Auckland. <laughs> they were everywhere and they were generally older to get that real, that quality deal. So we not only had to work around older people like in, in rural areas, mm-hmm. we had to teach them how to use the internet so that we could send scripts to them and send the videos to them, that sort of thing. It was a big learning curve for everybody. But we succeeded and I ended up doing some work for Tahiti Nui Television and some other Indigenous channels around the world, just a few shows here and there. But for a certain amount of time, we were churning out, you know, cartoons in Te Reo Māori, and which was really timely for the Māori television service because, you know, production is an expensive thing. And so having dubbing was a very cost-effective way of getting programming on online. And then we developed it by learning about it, really, and just fine-tuning it all. And along the way, of course, technology is changing all the time to the point now we're just last month, we're now on the cloud. Wouldn't even have thought about that five years ago. So Yeah. It's what, for me, just such a, a fascinating story. As you said, always, you know, thinking a couple of steps ahead and how do I, you know, create this change. But also it must have been wonderful for you to see and to be part of the, the movement, really making sure that Te Reo Māori lives and breathes as one of our core languages here in Aotearoa. Mm. Yeah, and... And it's interesting because I'm not a fluent speaker. I mean, I'm of the age where my my parents, well, certainly my mother came down in the 
in you know, the 60s, or no, actually it would have been 50s, from the far north, and she met my father. And I very quickly came along, and my parents were of that ilk that, you know, the Māori language wasn't going to help us in the city, and, it, and it, it wasn't in those days. But sadly, what happened is that we were brought up, you know, without having the reo, and it wasn't until the Kohanga Reo movement came along that, A, I saw the possibilities for the business, but also that we now have two, three generations of fluent Māori speakers. But those of us that are in our 60s, chances are not many of us have the deal. And so you do, you you find other ways of being in the waka, yeah? So this is my way. I do it by, by telling Māori stories, by working with other Indigenous peoples and connecting them with Māori and even in business, connecting other companies with Māori business here. And more recently, I was made chair of my iwi in the far north of, for Te Aupauri. And so I'm bringing in my business experience and my entrepreneurship, and I'm looking around going, okay, what have we got and what can we do with it? Um, and then thinking about how do we export that? How do we get to the world? So always, I'm, always, I'm a visionary, right? I find it very hard to be in the now. That's the downside. So I can, you know, my eye can get taken off the ball very quickly. I like the bit that you talked about in terms of, you know, it's, you found your way of being in the walker, which, you know, is contributing in different ways, whether it's telling stories, whether it's chairing the board, if you're iwi, you know, there's, you know, lots of different ways to contribute, but also that visionary piece, you know, that recognising that is your strength and actually you can bring other people around you to do some of the other bits, but that, you know, playing to your strengths has been absolutely fundamental, I'm sure, to your success along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess complicated a little bit by the fact that I, I was still discovering my skills. You know, I didn't. I left school at 15 and I was a mum by 17. And, and I had one child on purpose. I've had puppy dogs since. Sorry. I'm good. And I've got a good return on investment from that one. I've got six grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so it's my accounting yeah. brain coming in. Nice ROI. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And Rhonda, you know, you've already talked about perhaps some of the, the more difficult times along the way, but, you know, no no career is without its lumps and bumps along the way. What for you have been some of the, you know, most challenging or tricky moments of your career? From a media perspective, we live in, or well, we have been living in a an artificial media environment. By that, I mean that we're funded by the government, right, with New Zealand on air, Tamangai Paho, New Zealand Film Commission. So until Peter Jackson came along, you know, it was very little investment that was coming out of from overseas in terms of pre-sales, et cetera. So you were constantly just, you know, trying to get your piece of the pie and it turns you into a bit of a, oh, I don't know, a nervous wreck because it's like, you know, you're trying to get this proposal out and you don't know if you're going to get it and you've got payroll to meet next month and then the printer breaks down. Mm. And so it's the little, it's those little things that can just absolutely wear you down. But the biggest things I think is that as a woman in business, and certainly in the media business, that was rare in the 90s. And what I've learned overall is that it's hard enough for women, period, in this business, but it's even harder for Māori women or women of colour in this business. And even within our own, all right? So if you line them all up, you have 
you know, the Tawiwi boys are there and then the Māori boys are there and then you've got your Tawiwi women, wahine, there and then you've got your Māori wahine, you know, it's all that, there's nepotism, there's chauvinism, there's racism, all of that kind of stuff and all powdered in there. So how do you pick one thing? Well, you actually can't even, you can't dwell on that. you just got to go hard. And any woman who has worked in the media industry in this country and probably indefinitely overseas has fought for their place. And, you know, I take my hat off to all of them. And remember, there were no film schools for a number of years. Now we've got, you know, probably about three film schools. But so we all learnt on the job and we had to create our portfolios, which was our CV and our certificate, if you like, our diploma was the work that we were creating. It was very much a dog-eat-dog environment. We would have, you know, in the Māori production sector, you know, we could all be out the night before, best of mates, and that, and then the next day it's, you know, deadline day, and it's like it's every woman for herself. (laughs) And that hasn't really changed much, to be honest. There weren't many, and there still aren't enough Māori in the production sector, either pre post or in production. So, you know, I'm doing my bit to, up here in the far north to try and, you know, lift that. So there's not a lot of opportunities, but it's certainly a place that Māori and Pacifica belong in, you know, in terms of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, as you said, you know, that just that storytelling element coming through, whether it was, you know, your initial insight around Otara, you know, let's tell some of the different stories and the good news stories that are coming out, but that let's make sure that we're telling a whole range of stories, whether it's of, of Aotearoa, New Zealand, or as you said, maybe Indigenous peoples from other countries as well. We talked, Rhonda, there some about some of the the tougher bits and the more challenging moments. You know, as you look back on your career now, what are some of the things that you're proudest of? I'm proud of my body of work. I can look at every one of those programs and not one of them would make me cringe. And I guess I, well, I know I I held myself to a standard and I can't do any less than, you know, holding myself up there, which is, can be stressful and uh, because you can be hard on yourself, you know, from a creative perspective and then you know, you've got to make your living, you've got to meet your payroll, you've got to meet your, you know, your obligations and commitments, all of that kind of stuff. And you're weighing all of that up. And so thank goodness for my, my, you know, my accounting experience from my early days. That certainly helped me. And I've, you know, I've gone on to help others in that regard as well. And then it wasn't until my 40s that I actually discovered through a lovely new doctor, and he's been my doctor since, that I lived with social anxiety. So it was really ironic that here I am, you know, giving speeches in front of 500 people, pitching in Cannes, you know, in Toronto, being in this media business with a high profile, and I hated being around people. I didn't know how to be with them. So you just hang on for dear life and you just keep going. But I've learned to live with that now and it's great, it's fine and I'm good. But I also give myself permission not to put myself out there as much anymore. You know, in the start, it was like, oh, I've got to be everywhere. I've got to be talking, I've got to be doing this. But I wasn't putting my best self out there. So I guess, you know, one of the things that I can offer is that just take a moment to breathe, you know, get too puzzled, you know, just be shui shui. Just when you think that you're getting a little too, oh, just like, you know, sit down, take a breath, take the moment and then stand up and go again. Mm, wonderful advice. But also how inspiring that, as you said, with that social anxiety, 
you were kind of did have the courage to to stand up in front of 500 people as you said you know do those pitches but also recognizing that probably on the other side of that you did need to give yourself that space and time sometimes to breathe too and where do you see your career now heading in the future oh my gosh so I'm developing feature film and it is called Showband and it is the story of the Maori volcanics and I am beside myself with excitement with it. So I'm still in that area, although, you know, it's going to take a couple of years. <laughs> I'm lucky to get it all done. But meanwhile, I'm working in the digital space. Kiwa is still working in publications and digital publications. And my husband and I are now living in Monganui. We moved up here last September when I got involved with our iwi and I can work from here. Um, and I also have a, have a, a program called Taku Kōrero, which means my story. And I've been having this since, running these since about 2014. When I went up to Alaska, I was asked to do a keynote speech there to education. And I thought, gosh, I'm on day three of this conference. What am I going to do for three days in Anchorage, Alaska? It was freezing. And then I thought, okay, why don't we make a book? So I said to my colleagues there, give me 20 kids. We're going to make a book in two days. I'm going to send it back to my guys in New Zealand. They're going to turn it into an app and I'm going to present it in my talk. And my talk was about the Indigenous world in the digital environment. And that was... 2014, was that 2000? Yeah, 2014. So it's a little bit away, you know, it was who knew what this was going to look like. So we did. And so I was able to say to this group of people, while you've been sitting here talking about whether you, your school should go digital, your tamariki have been locked away for two days and this is what they've made. And I put it up on the screen. But what I saw, the most important, I mean, the, the adults were all in tears and it was a wonderful thing. But what I saw was a transformation of those young people. I saw lights going on where they created a book by hand, hand wrote it. They did it in bilingual. I encouraged them to do their their, their as well. Drew all their pictures and they did that all by hand. Then my team put the technology onto it. We put some animations on, we put some sound effects. They also recorded all their language as well. So we were able to put that. And with my voice cue software, we were able to uh, synchronize the text to the audio. So that was all in perfect sync. And that way they started, they got to see that you control the technology. It doesn't control you. You have just told that technology what to do. And it's interesting because I was at Māori Land Film Festival in Ōtaki just this past week, and we had a talk about innovation in the space. And that was my contribution was that, you know, our young people need to understand that you control the technology. And so when they're getting these texts, right, you're too fat, you're too black, and, you know, and they're taking themselves to the garage, it's, you know, don't trust it. There's, that technology is not it cannot control you, yeah? You tell it what to do, even if it's coming from another human being. And so we've been able to see these little lights go on and it's just been amazing watching these young people, you know, telling these stories and imagining, even imagining what a life would be like by creating a different life for themselves in these little stories. So witnessing the emotional intelligence and the lights going on with these young people and what I do believe and what I've learned in my 67 years of life is that once you learn something you can't unlearn it so if you can go to a place if you're coming from a negative space and you're writing a story and somehow you get some cathartic healing around that then 
you can't go back to that space anymore. Your body's gone, nah, we're done with that. We don't know what it feels like anymore. And then that's a start and you just take another step. So we're still doing those now. Wonderful. And just that power of people, as you said, being able to own and tell their own stories, but also perhaps being able to envision different futures and possibilities for themselves. I love that piece that you talked about, Rhonda, about, you know, actually, know, taking control of the technology and seeing how you can make it work for you. Such, such an important lesson. Wonderful. And I have one last question, Rhonda, if I may, which is, I'd love to hear what career advice would you have for other women? You know, it's interesting, this word career, because that assumes you have one career, potentially. I saw the saying once, don't build a career, build experiences. And I think that's what I've done. So yes, I've had a vision of where I was going. I didn't have a a, a mind map or anything. I was following my nose and following my vision. But the experiences that I learned from that took me from one place to the other, to this career that I have today. But it's made up of so many other careers. Does that make sense? So that's one thing. But, you know, in terms of advice, if it feels too good to be true, it probably is. And that's where you just slow down. And just have a look at the information that's in front of you. And I I go for my gut. Probably because I haven't had an academic (laughs) education. So I'm not looking for, in the first instance, I can read a contract and I can just feel my gut go "Eh," at that little bit. That's where my lawyer is going to look, you know. I don't try to be a lawyer. I'm not. So that's my mantra, really. Wonderful. And I think it is so true that, you know, Absolutely. I think often people think, oh, I must know what I want to do with the rest of my life and my career or whatever. But if a career is 40, 50 years, you know, or more nowadays, then actually building up those different experiences and, you know, thinking about even for you, whether, as you said, that first work experience and the the plumbing piece or whether it's, you know, from an accounting work and how useful I'm sure that's been to you as you've come through your career. All those experiences have built up to to form your the life and the different bits of work that you've that you've done, which is fantastic to hear. And that trust your gut base, I, I would agree with, you know, I know for myself the it, the one time when I made, I went down the wrong path career-wise and I didn't listen to my gut. And if I had, I would have known that it was the wrong path, you know, so I, I absolutely am with you in terms of actually, yes, you can do the analysis and the pros and cons of something, but sometimes if there's something in your stomach going, mm, it's not quite right, to listen to that intuition as well. Absolutely. Rhonda, it's been wonderful to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story as well. I've learned a huge amount um, for speaking to you, so I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Anna. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.